Well, hello everyone. Uh, we're back for a Facebook Live study of the book of Matthew, hoping that uh, this will uh, connect and that you will be able to find me okay. I'm excited about what uh, our study started with a couple of days ago. And that is a, a that was a fun introduction to the book of Matthew and also a quick run through of uh, chapters one through two. And I won't review everything that was a part of that, but I, um, I will share a, a couple of things. Uh, Matthew, of course, uh, being one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the 12 apostles, a tax collector, uh, as he was at his tax collector's booth when Jesus called him, which we'll read about in Matthew 9. Um, and, uh, and as he writes his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, he writes it from the perspective of someone reaching out to uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He is uh, very much concerned for them and wanting to demonstrate to them, in a sense, prove to them that, uh, that he is actually, Jesus is the Messiah. And, uh, and so that is, um, you know, that is something that, uh, that, uh, Matthew is trying to establish. And so a lot of Old Testament, as we would call it, a lot of fulfillment of prophecy. He sees Jesus as the king. He sees him as coming to establish his kingdom. And so the kingdom of God has a whole lot of, of uh, specifics as it relates to, um, uh, to, to all of that. And so it looks like we're getting a few folks uh, coming in and joining us. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm able to see any comments yet, uh, but hopefully um, we'll be able to uh, uh, see some of those and it's exciting. I appreciate uh, everyone uh, joining in. I've seen some things from Ginger Pippin and Debbie Spears um, and Eric Mosley and some others. So good to have you. Glad that, uh, glad that you're coming along with us. Uh, one of the things about the Gospel of Matthew and really any study is you take a look at, I always look for a theme verse, some kind of theme that may be a passage, it may be a verse, and Matthew has a lot of possibilities. Uh, Matthew 22 uh, is looking at uh, the greatest commandments to love God, to love neighbor as self. That certainly could be a theme, a theme passage. Matthew 7, 12 is the great, uh, is the golden rule. Uh, treat others the way you would like to be treated. That certainly uh, would be great. Matthew 6.33 would be a great one, and it relates to the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added and given to you as well, everything you need that he's been talking about. Um, but I, I go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 through 20, and especially Matthew 5 uh, verse 20, uh, that where Jesus challenges his hearers, and he says, hey, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or scribes, and you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that kind of introduces his commentary on uh, the law and on righteousness that is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And, uh, and also I think is a good uh, way of stating what Matthew's purpose is in writing uh, this as well. Hello to my old friend Dennis Hogan from Center for Christian Education Days and our dear friends, Joe and Lenny Allard, we love y'all so much and glad that you're joining in. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, one of the things about studying a gospel that I think is really important for us to consider is uh, how you apply it. Because as we read through these things, remember uh, these all happened, they're descriptive of the things that happened in the lifetime of Jesus. And, uh, and so we understand that there's that time frame, those first 30 or so years of the post-Christ, the, the after, uh, the current millennium, uh, however you want to, or the current era, however you want to call that. Um, but then also you have Matthew writing something. And Matthew is a churchman. He's writing to uh, the church and he's reminding them of the life of Christ and the teaching of Christ and how Christ fulfills all of those great uh, prophecies. And so he's helping them uh, that are people in the church of his day to be able to defend, in a sense, uh, their Christian faith uh, to their Jewish uh, friends and others. And so, so you have the time of Jesus and then you have the time of Matthew, which is a few, probably writing a few decades later. 
uh, after the death of Christ. And um, maybe, maybe AD 50s, maybe AD 70s, uh, probably before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, because Matthew 24 seems like would have been written a little differently, or at least would have been acknowledging that, hey, some of these things have already happened. So I figure anyway, according to Bill, it's uh, before AD 70, but not a whole lot before probably. And um, uh, Mark, I, th I still think is one of the early, is the earliest of the four gospels and uh, John the latest, and then Matthew and Luke are in there somewhere in between. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of what we're looking at as time frame. So you have the life of Christ and the things that you're reading about as they happen uh, in the early part of the first century. But then you also have the time of Matthew, uh, a couple of two or three decades later, as he's writing about the things that happened. Uh, maybe four decades later, and then, or close, maybe not that much, but then you also have us and how we apply it to our lives today. And so I think you try to make sense of all of that as you're reading through a Bible uh, 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 book uh, or passage. You know, I tell people, those of you that have been around me a while know that what I'm about to say, which is you don't check your brain at the door. It's good to think through these things and to study them and to have all the tools around that you can. Uh, but ultimately, we rest in the assurance that this is the word of God. I believe it's inspired and authoritative and that the Holy Spirit was active in the things that Matthew wrote. Just like Luke affirms, they did their homework. They, Matthew is writing a first person account of some of these things as he writes. Um, and so we understand that there's a human element in that. But ultimately, it is the inspired and authoritative word of God. Um, and so that's that's where we start from. Nice to see my friends Larry and Lynn uh, here uh, from our West Irwin Church family. I hope you all are doing uh, are doing well. And so um, on Tuesday we kind of looked at Matthew chapters one and two and just went through that pretty quickly uh, and established a lot of those things. And as we get into chapter three, I, I want us to just say briefly a a couple of things about you know what's coming up. Um, Luke gives us a lot more of the story of uh, John the Baptist and his conception and, and his birth and, uh, and Jesus and the interaction that Jesus, uh, that uh, the angel has with uh, Mary. We read about uh, the situation with Joseph in Matthew, but not Mary. And uh, it's always been interesting to me that God would tell Mary ahead of time uh, that all of this was going to happen, but not Joseph. And so when Mary talks to Joseph, Joseph has to accept it uh, by faith. And he doesn't uh, obviously believe her at first, uh, but when the angel uh, comes to see him, um, then he does. And, and so that's a, uh, and to Joseph's credit, he, he is shown to be a person of faith, a man of faith, all around, and uh, uh, the the what Matthew talks about with with Joseph is a great uh, great story, um, and that but we don't hear anything about John the Baptist until chapter three when oh John's here and he's preaching okay <laughs> welcome John into the world, um, and so a little bit about that from Luke uh, Luke gives us more of the story uh, of John the Baptist. His conception is also a miraculous thing. Remember his parents were elderly. Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child desperately and had not been able to have children. Uh, and then, uh, they get the word that they are. And, uh, and Zechariah seems to be a bit hesitant about it. And, and so he is unable to speak, uh, throughout the pregnancy. But then, uh, when, um, uh, the baby is born, he, is given his speech back when he establishes, gets an etch a sketch out or something and writes down his name is John. Uh, even though they thought it would be Zechariah Jr., it's not, it's John. And that was what uh, 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 the angel said, that's what Elizabeth said, that's what Zechariah finally said. And then he could speak and he has that beautiful, amazing uh, song, much very similar to Mary's song, the Magnificat, uh, that John, John's father is able to share. And we also saw that interaction when they were both in the womb, Jesus and John. And uh, uh, when uh, uh, John was um, in the womb and Mary goes to see uh, Elizabeth after the angel had visited her and said that she was pregnant as well and a little bit further along and the baby inside of, 
of uh, uh, the womb, John the Baptist, inside of Elizabeth, jumps for joy because uh, the mother of my Lord had has come into this home, and that and uh, and uh, and Elizabeth says, I I don't understand why this would why this would happen, and even the baby inside of me recognizes it, and and so it's a great it's a great thing. It's certainly a a, a message about the sanctity of human life, even in the womb, and I feel very strongly about that. Uh, and that is given credibility and uh, uh, a, a great message there. Uh, but then John is born, and uh, and Luke tells us that story. And then as as John continues to grow up, it says in Luke one verse eighty that he was very strong in spirit. And so if you've ever had a strong-willed child, then um, John's parents identify; they're right there with you. And knowing what John uh, did in his ministry. He had to have a strong will. He stood up to uh, all of the Jewish leaders. He stood up for the word of God. And uh, we're going to be able to be reading about that um, in, in chapter three. John uh, grows up strong in spirit. And a similar statement is made of Jesus, uh, not exactly the same, uh, in Luke 2, in verse 52, that he grew in uh, in wisdom and in stature, physically in favor with God and with man. Um, and so we see Jesus growing and John growing. And then um, in Matthew chapter three, where we're introduced uh, to the apostle uh, or to the, uh, the man, John the Baptist. So we'll try to do a little bit more reading today uh, than we did on Tuesday, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm going to try to cover two chapters in an hour each time. And so, um, and so we'll get that. My friend Perry Hall, and good to see you. I, I know you appreciate being able to cover a lot of material in a little amount of time. And it's funny because when I was a young preacher, uh, I always worried that I was going to run out of material before I run out of time. And lately, that's not been the problem. And all of you who uh, are regular attenders at West Irwin or have been at churches where I've been in the past, such as South Fork, in North Carolina, such as Woodland West in Arlington, um, you know that I have no trouble uh, with that. And uh, so I tend to run out of time before I run out of material. So all of that being said, and not taking any more of this precious time, Matthew 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. So this guy was strong in spirit. He was not afraid to, be, uh, to go against the flow. And as we're going to read, that was a very important thing for John. People, verse 5 of Matthew 3, went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he wasn't much in favor of it. Um, as Matthew begins this uh, great story, he quotes from that wonderful uh, 40th chapter of Isaiah and starts out, and we remember the... Uh, uh, I, I always think about the play Godspell when I read that passage and that haunting melody, uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord. You know that tune, even as bad as I butchered it. Um, and, and that's such a haunting melody because John came saying that. He was the fulfillment of that. And that great chapter in Isaiah 40, not only it begins pretty close to the beginning, with that statement looking ahead to John the Baptist, but then it ends with that great passage that talks about how God will care for us and how he will lift us up on wings like eagles. That's from uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and that's where this story with John the Baptist begins uh, in Matthew 3. Um, and so now people are going to start coming to him to be baptized, but um, it's not that easy with John. Um, and so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, uh, each in a, a, a sect of the Jews, and there were several others, but Pharisees and Sadducees come along and he says, you brood of vipers, you basically, you, you bunch of snakes, 
who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's gonna say more, Jesus is in Matthew's gospel about bearing fruit and how you will know people by their fruit, whether it's a good plant or not. Um, and, and John says right now, look, if you're gonna come and you're gonna accept my teaching and you're gonna be baptized with this baptism of repentance that I'm sharing, then you need to repent. You need to change. You need to do exactly what uh, I'm calling you to do. And in Luke chapter three, Luke says a little bit more about that. Luke has some of the people that are there in the crowd asking John, well, what do you mean? Don't just say produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's have a little bit more specifics. And so he tells them some specifics, some of the soldiers, some of the tax collectors, others. He says, you know, you need to be, you need to do what's right. You need to do what's right. Uh, there's no excuse for doing uh, wrong. And, and so just like here, he says, hey, don't, don't give me this, oh, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm part of the chosen people. Um, that's not gonna work. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, and that great, great sermon on the temple, uh, I've heard it called Sermon on the Church Building, says to them, hey, don't come and tell me that this is the temple of the Lord. Don't come and tell me that we are safe, safe to do all these horrible things. Uh, John very much says the same thing. Uh, you need to produce fruit. If you're going to come and repent, then repent. Repent. Change your life. That's what the word means. Uh, change your life. And so Luke in Luke 3 gives us some examples of what John said. But then John continues in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, I don't know about you, but John has a little bit different view of Jesus and the Messiah who was coming after him than most of the world, I think, today does. Uh, we're reminded of those portraits of Jesus from during the Middle Ages where um, he looks, uh, he, he just looks odd. He looks weak, not meek, weak. And the Messiah that John talks about is anything but weak. He is a harvester. He's coming with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he's going to be, uh, he's going to be blasting those who are unacceptable. And John begins that message right now, and he challenges them. And he says, hey, he's coming, and he's going to bring the Holy Spirit in fire. His baptism is going to be even more than mine. And, uh, and so Jesus does come and he brings the Holy Spirit. We see that given on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two and, and, and beginning there and continuing on even to today. And John says he's gonna baptize with fire. And perhaps that is an allusion to the ultimate judgment. Uh, when you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you come away with this impression. Jesus was not weak, he was strong. He was not one who dilly-dallied around the truth. He came, John 1 says, full of grace, yes, and truth. And I've said before, I think that's what gets him into trouble. If he was coming with just grace, then, then he would have a group that followed him no matter what. Um, but if he came with just truth, he would have a group that followed him no matter what. But what he does is he comes with grace and truth, and that's a much harder message. It's our message today. And that's why some might accuse us of being inconsistent because we stand fully 100% with the truth of God's word. But we also stand uh, with the grace and mercy of God. And uh, that's a hard balance to keep. I know, I know. And there's nothing in the gospels that Jesus indicated that following him would be easy. Um, and he calls us to take up our cross, denying ourselves and follow him and share that same message. John begins that message here and introduces it. Um, and then Jesus is going to come along. 
in Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13, we read the story of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. You know, one of the things about John is that he never claimed that he was the Messiah. He never did. He denied that all along. And when they ask him, well, who are you? That's when he points back to Isaiah 40 and he says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Get ready, prepare the way for the Lord. Here, when Jesus comes along, John says, oh, no, 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 no. You are the greater. I am the lesser. I should be baptized of you. And he's right. He's right. You see, Jesus didn't need to be baptized by John. Uh, there's a wonderful book out on, uh, on baptism, um, and, and it's entitled uh, Down in the River uh, to Pray. And it's a great, uh, great uh, uh, book by John Mark Hicks and, and Craig Hood, I believe. And as, as we see this story being played out right before us in Matthew chapter 3 um, and in Luke chapter 3, and, it's, and we see that Jesus is uh, coming to be baptized by John, even though he doesn't need to, because John's baptism, like Jesus and his disciples' baptism, would be a baptism of repentance calling on people uh, to change, calling on people to do what's right. And so John says, well, okay, then I guess I will. Uh, I guess I will. Uh, I'll, I'll baptize you because you've asked. And one of the things that uh, the book brings out, down baptism down in the river to pray, is that in this, uh, in this moment, uh, Jesus identifies with us. When we're baptized, we're seeking to identify with him and to received the salvation that he made possible by his death on the cross. But here, just like he did when he came to this earth in the first place and took upon human form, um, he is trying to identify uh, with us so that we can be, uh, be able to point to him as one uh, who has come to save us. And the Holy Spirit descends and the voice from heaven is unmistakable. This is my son. This is the one that you are uh, to listen to. Um, and Jesus uh, has been uh, baptized and not because he had sins. That's why we're baptized. And that's why they were baptized in John's day, because they had sins and they needed to repent. And that's why we're baptized today, because we have, we're sinners. And, and, and we need that saving grace of God, that that salvation that only comes through the blood of Christ. And, and so we are baptized, and Luke is going to begin that great story in Acts 2 as he talks about how we are called to repent once we believe and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and we'll receive this gift of the Holy Spirit that John promised that Jesus would bring. Um, but when Jesus comes, it's not a baptism of repentance. Uh, he has no sins to repent of, and yet he goes through this anyway, and he does it for us. Um, he does it uh, for us. Later on in, in Matthew 11, we're going to hear more about, about John, and then we're going to read of his horrible death in, um, in Matthew 14. And that's such a touching moment, because when Jesus gets the word that John had been killed, beheaded in prison uh, because of the selfishness of Herod and his, specifically uh, his wife. Um, uh, and Herod refused to um, give in to the truth, just like Pilate did, and has John beheaded. When Jesus hears about that, he is sorrowful and goes off by himself to reflect and to pray. Um, again, identifying with us in a way that uh, we, we get that. We understand the loss uh, that Jesus felt that day. But for now, John is just beginning. 
And even in John chapter one, he's going to point to Jesus and he's going to tell the disciples that were following him, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, lots of great and fun stuff uh, coming along. Um, and so we're seeing some more people join us. Jerry and Beverly are here from our church here. Also, Suzanne Brawley. Hey, Brawley. And my wonderful sister-in-law, Jennifer Long. It's great to see you, Dee Dee. <laughs> glad, glad, that you're, uh, glad that you're joining us. So now we go to the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus is tempted by Satan. And it's a pretty uh, familiar uh, passage. And it's, it's very descriptive. It's, um, it's Jesus interacting and, and experiencing temptation just like, just like we do. Um, so let's read that. Jesus was led by the Spirit, Matthew 4, 1, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, yeah. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now Satan is quoting scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. We read this same story in Luke chapter four, the story of the temptations of Jesus, Satan going at him with both barrels and trying to nip this in the bud, as our old friend Barney Fife would say, and keep Jesus and defeat him before he ever gets a real chance to get started. And each time Satan throws a temptation at him, what does Jesus respond with? He responds with scripture. He responds with the word of God. Uh, he had it in his heart. He had it in his mind. And we need to as well. We need to be good students of the word so that some of those scriptures come to our mind uh, when we are faced with temptation also. Um, and, and it's interesting the way that Jesus does this. The scriptures he quote are right out of the law. In fact, they're out of two chapters of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. He first responds to Satan when Satan says, hey, you're hungry. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus do it? Yes, he could. Would it have alleviated his hunger? It absolutely would. But that's not why Jesus came. He doesn't just act in ways to help himself, to make him feel better, to take away his suffering. He does what is the father's will. And so he responds to Satan with that great passage, that great verse from Deuteronomy 8, which is a great chapter, um, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The ultimate decision for Jesus was exactly what he prayed in the garden uh, of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Um, and so Satan gets that. And so now he's going to challenge him with scripture. Hey, the Bible also says that the angels are going to be there to protect you. So go ahead and jump off. It'll be cool. Everyone will see it. It'll be awesome. And Jesus again responds with scripture. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. And so finally, Satan just cuts to the quick and he says, look, this is about you inheriting the world. This is You've come here so that you can be the Lord of all. I can make that happen today. I can make that happen without going through the pain and misery of, of dealing with all these disciples and, and seeing their inconsistency and lack of faith and, and suffering like you're going to suffer when you are arrested and betrayed by your friends and, and forsaken, even by the Father, you're going to feel forsaken. And the horror of crucifixion that you know you're going to have to endure. You don't have to go through all of that. I can make that happen now. I can make that happen now. All you have to do is worship me. 
And Jesus says, well, yeah, I don't think he wanted to go through any of that at any time. Certainly that's why he prayed that prayer in the garden. But the bottom line for Jesus was not my will, but yours be done. And he understood that. And we know what that will of God is the same way that Jesus responds to Satan here by going back to the Bible, by looking at what the scriptures teach and seeking ourselves to live that way. That's what Jesus does here. Um, that's what Jesus uh, does. And just as his baptism and his response to John had said, let it, let it be so now, not for repentance, but to fulfill all righteousness. Here he points to that righteousness coming from the word of God. And the question is, does Satan use scripture now to tempt us just like he did with Jesus? Well, I have to say, yeah, I have to say, yes, he does. We're going to see a great example of that in Matthew chapter seven, verse one, a very familiar verse, a verse that some people have said is the new John three sixteen. It's so popular. And it's that verse that says, judge not that you be not judged. And people have used that uh, to uh, tell people, look, you can't tell me how to live because the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. And what they don't realize is that the Bible has a lot more to say about it than just that. And that Matthew and his gospel has a lot more to say about it than just that. And even if they would just read the rest of Matthew 7, the rest of Matthew 7, Jesus talks a lot about making proper judgments, like judging a, a tree by its fruit like judging what is the will of the Father. When Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will receive the kingdom and be a part of the kingdom, but only the ones who obey my word. Those are the ones who will accept that. Then they will be acceptable themselves. We don't do that perfectly, but that's our purpose. That's our desire. That's our goal. That's the path that we're on. It's the path that Jesus was on all the time, including right here in Matthew 4. Early in his ministry, tempted by Satan, the adversary, to try to turn away from worshiping only the Father and to try to have a shortcut to becoming the Lord of this world. Jesus says, no, Satan, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it the way of the Father. And that was the way of pain. And it was the way of difficulty, and it was the way of suffering, and ultimately, it was the way of death. When this passage ends, in Luke's version, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, Luke says that Satan went away from him until an opportune time. <laughs> and I think that this is not the only time that Satan tempted Jesus. I think he tempted him throughout his life. I think he tempted him at every turn. Um, we find... Um, uh, that same temptation to shortcut all the way to the cross uh, and the people standing around Jesus when he was being crucified, taunting him and telling him, hey, come down from that cross now, Mr. Big Shot, and we'll believe you. And Jesus could have done that just like he could have jumped off the highest point of the temple here and people would have believed him, but that wasn't the will of the Father. And he was going to do things the will of the Father's way because that was the only way that you and I could be saved. That's the only way that we could be forgiven. Oh, Jesus would have been spared, but the rest of us wouldn't have been. And so he turned Satan down here in Matthew 4. He turned Satan down throughout his life, and he turned him down on the cross. And instead, he said, um, I will commit my soul, my spirit into the hands of the Father. This coming Sunday morning, uh, Sunday, as our online services continue, um, I'll be speaking about the words of Jesus from the cross, and we'll remind ourselves of his incredible humanity as he seeks to take care of his mother, even during his dying breaths, um, and as he acknowledges his own humanity, uh, uh, confessing that he's about to die and, and he's thirsty. Um, uh, an incredible scene. And then the last week of this month, this great moment where Jesus says it is finished. Uh, but it wasn't finished now. It was just getting started. And so in verse 12 and the rest of the chapter in Matthew chapter 4, um, Jesus' ministry actually really truly begins. 
and we don't see something that uh, Luke carries forth in his gospel in Luke uh, 4, because there Jesus um, goes back home to his hometown of Nazareth and goes into the synagogue in that great moment where uh, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he and he reads from it and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And boy, what a great moment that was. Man, that was amazing. And yet what, uh, what uh, Luke says happens that day is that they, they turn against him. They turn against him even then. Matthew doesn't tell us that story, but he does introduce us to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So reading the rest of Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, Matthew 4, 12, um, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, which he was, and we'll hear more about that later, he withdrew to Galilee, that northern province, uh, Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is, uh, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee in the north. Uh, his hometown of Nazareth, where his parents had raised him. Uh, leaving Nazareth, verse 13, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum became a very important city for Jesus and for his disciples. Matthew explains a little bit about where that is. Uh, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, when uh, Joshua divided up the land, that it, that was their their descend, that was their uh, possession was in the north, um, and Jesus going there, Matthew tells us, is to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah: "Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, north of the Jordan River, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles." It said in verse fifteen. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, verse 18, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, or the ten cities on the other side of the Jordan, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so we see this ministry of Jesus beginning, and beginning in Galilee of the Gentiles as Isaiah calls it in Isaiah chapter nine. And I think as Isaiah is referring to that, when the land was passed out to the tribes by Joshua long, long ago, and he gave them their, their possession, uh, some of the Gentiles were never able to be uh, uh, overcome and defeated. And that was true of these Northern tribes. And so sometimes it was referred to Galilee of the Gentiles, but Isaiah says, Matthew says, they have seen a great light. And it's very likely that this fulfillment was lost on everyone until the time of Acts chapter 10, when the first Gentile convert, uh, Cornelius, becomes a Christian. Uh, and then the light goes on in the disciples' minds. Oh, wow, this is a light for the Gentiles also, not just the Jews. Matthew makes mention of that here. Um, in this very passage. And then Jesus begins to call his, um, his disciples uh, because he needs them to share the message that he has, similar to John's, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven is that thread that goes all throughout the gospel of Matthew. So Jesus calls Simon and Peter, uh, Simon and Andrew, first of all. He calls Andrew. John gives us a little bit more uh, background on some of these things in John 1. 
And he calls Andrew and Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. And his name is Simon or Simeon, another one of the 12 tribes of Jacob, uh, one of his sons. And Jesus changes his name from Simeon or Simon, um, which means one who hears or one who listens to Peter, which as you likely know, means the rock. Uh, Andrew is uh, uh, wonderful in reaching out to his brother who had become a key leader uh, in the church in those first uh, decades. Um, we see that they are from um, the nearby town of Bethsaida, not far uh, from Capernaum and Nazareth. And it's interesting that Peter is always mentioned first, even though Andrew is the one who brought Peter uh, to Christ. Uh, Peter is the one uh, who uh, is mentioned first. And uh, that call, follow me and I will make you fishers, not just of fish, but fishers of people. Go out and catch people to leave their life of sin and to become disciples of mine. It's a great, incredible call. We have that same call today to continue to share that message, to continue to call people to fish for people, to help them come to know Christ. Not only does Jesus call Andrew and Peter, he also calls two other brothers, James and John. And they were partners with Peter and Andrew in the fishing business, according to Luke 5. And they were likely all from the, the city, the town of Bethsaida. And uh, uh, Luke 5 records a miraculous catch that the four had. And Peter's response going to Jesus in and, and humility and, and announcing that he is a sinful man. And yet Jesus calls him. If only Peter had kept that attitude uh, throughout, especially at the time of Jesus' arrest, but he comes back around, as we know. They all four leave everything, and they follow Jesus. And what's interesting is after the crucifixion, they go back to fishing. Because one of those appearances that Jesus has in John 21 after his resurrection, they're out fishing for fish. But Jesus will remind them and us in the Great Commission that whatever our our uh, way of life is to gain a living, we are called upon uh, to uh, fish also for people and to call them to come to Christ. Uh, James and John, before we begin to close up today, James and John are named the sons of thunder by Jesus in Mark chapter three. And we remember the story in Luke chapter nine when they were ready to call down fire from heaven, kind of Sodom and Gomorrah-like, to uh, destroy the Samaritan villages that were rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. But these sons of thunder, James and John, are very significant in the life of Christ and in the life of the church. And it's interesting that James is always mentioned first before John when they're mentioned together. James, the son of Zebedee, uh, and his brother, John. Even though John was the significant leader of the church, and we'll say why James wasn't in just a moment. Um, but it's, it's James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in Matthew 10. But in Acts chapter 1, uh, it's the other way around. John has become the significant brother. Uh, we remember Matthew chapter 20 when James and John and their mother come to Jesus, and she has a request. Let my son sit with you when you come in your kingdom, one on the right and one on the left. Um, and the disciples are upset because they didn't think of that first. <laughs> um, and Jesus says, well, it's not that simple. You're going to suffer a lot. But to decide those places is up to the Father. But let me tell you this, Jesus says in Matthew 20, you guys are going about it all wrong. You're going about it the way the world goes about it. You see, the greatest among you is the one who is last, not first. The greatest among you is the one who serves because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for, for many. Uh, he calls us to that same life of service uh, as well. Uh, Peter, James, and John are that inner circle of Jesus. He has 12 apostles that are uh, uh, brought uh, away from the big crowd that followed Jesus. And in that group of 12, there were three that were especially close to him, Peter, James, and John. They go a little further with Jesus uh, when he's there at the Transfiguration, they're there. Uh, and we'll read about that in a few more chapters. When Jairus's daughter is raised, it is Peter, James, and John who goes in there uh, with Jesus. 
And then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the apostles are there. But he goes a little bit farther uh, with Peter, James, and John. And, uh, and so we see that they're especially close to Jesus. Maybe John the closest of all, as he describes himself in the Gospel of John, that he wrote as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But we read the end of James's story in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 6, uh, Stephen is one of those who is chosen as the seven to help take care of the widows in the early church. And then in Acts uh, chapter 6 and 7, he goes to preaching and he tells the story of Jesus, much like what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but instead of 3,000 being baptized, the Jews uh, become incensed and angered and uh, stone him to death, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. And so this James becomes the first apostle killed for the faith. All of the apostles will be killed for the faith in one way or another. Um, John, perhaps the only one indirectly, as he is in exile on the island of Patmos, um, but they all die at the hands of those who uh, oppressively oppose the ministry of Jesus and the church. And it's a great witness to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the resurrection that many celebrated this past Sunday on Easter Sunday. Uh, these disciples, if they were lying, if they knew this wasn't true, they would have never, never suffered like they did. Uh, but they knew in their heart that they had seen Jesus alive. And they knew that what they were saying was the truth. And if it meant their suffering and being beaten and ultimately killed, they would not back down. Um, it's a great witness. Uh, and the first of those is James, the brother of John. Um, it's interesting how James is the first one uh, killed. And uh, Peter would be arrested right after that, but would have a miraculous escape in Acts chapter 12. And you wonder why uh, Herod, King Herod, uh, arrested James first rather than Peter. Maybe he could just get to him easier, or maybe James was a significant leader in the church at that time. And then he arrests Peter, and Peter is released, but not James. Uh, he has James killed uh, for the faith. There's another significant James, or a few other Jameses in the New Testament, but another one of great significance. It is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 13, verse 55, uh, we read about uh, Jesus' brethren, his brothers and sisters, and James is one of those, as is Jude, who also writes, both of them write a book of the Bible, the book of James and the book of Jude. But James is the more significant one, as it were, uh, in the early church, and he is described also in Acts chapter 1 as waiting with the disciples, and he is the one that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, saw the resurrected Lord. And we know that during their lifetime, during the lifetime of Jesus, they didn't accept that he was the Messiah. In fact, they kind of made fun of him at times, such as in John 7. But one look at the resurrected Christ and they were convinced. And James becomes not only a disciple of Jesus, but he becomes one of the leaders of the early church. Not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He was killed in Acts 12, but James takes a lead in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem conference. He's one of the significant ones that Paul went to right after his conversion, as he describes it in Galatians chapter 2. And so we, that is the James who was the half-brother of Jesus. But the James we're introduced to in this chapter, and who will later be killed for the faith in Acts chapter 12, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And, um, and from there, as we read, Jesus heals a lot of people. People come from everywhere uh, to bring people of all kinds of conditions to him. And, and, and he is able uh, to heal them, heal them. And news about him begins to spread. And that's going to lead us into that great, um, that great passage in Matthew 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it is some of the hardest and yet some of the most incredible teaching. Uh, that Jesus will give, and he reminds us of that cost of discipleship, to deny self, and to take up our cross, and to follow him. He tells us what that looks like uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, through 7. Um, 
So it's great to have been with you today. It's great to see some old friends, some new friends, uh, some new as in the last five years since we've been here, friends. Sheila, wonderful to see you. Uh, Janice, great to see you. Also some uh, older friends from Arlington uh, days, Susie Hogan, what a blessing. Um, and even reaching back way, way back to C-Dorm and Oklahoma Christian College days in the 70s, my friend Mike Eisenberg, my roommate. Uh, what a blessing, my Christian brother. Great to see you, Mike, being listening in on this. And boy, if uh, anybody can be, uh, uh, would say something like, yeah, Bill, this sounds like Hugo McCord or Raymond Kelsey. That's, that's as great an honor as I could ever have. Um, let's close with prayer, and then I'll see if I can figure out again how to end this thing. Father, thank you for the joy of life. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for the blessing of your church. Even though we're socially distant, yet we're still together. Thank you for the technology that makes that happen. Thank you for this wonderful gospel of Matthew that tells us about John and Jesus and Andrew and Peter and James and John and so many others, but that tells us especially, Father, about your son, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the humility that he came and brought and the power, Father, in his resurrection. So, Father, bless us. Our world is troubled right now, and we ask for you to look down and heal our land as you promised in Second Chronicles 7. And we know, Father, that that will come according to your will. Help our leaders to act wisely. Uh, help them, Father, to seek good counsel and good guidance. And, Father, we pray that your hand would be at work in our land and around the world during this time. Father, help us to be fishers of people. Help us, Father, to follow and be disciples of Jesus and to encourage others by our life and by our words to do the same. Thank you, Father. Bless all of those that are a part of this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, my dear friends. I really enjoyed being with you. Remember, we're going to do this every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 o'clock if Bill can figure out how to do the technology. Um, and so God bless you all.